Welcome to Democratically 2020, the podcast all about the politics, policies, and personalities of the 2020 US election. I'm your host, Karen Robinson. We've got a great episode today in which we're going to speak to Deputy Director for Climate for Data for Progress, Marcella Marholland, about the dueling uh, presidential um, town halls, which were not debates, um, that happened last night. Um, and we're going to talk about climate change policy, what Joe Biden's climate change policies are, and catch up on the news generally. But before we do that, I have some exciting news for you. Um, as you may know, if you're a regular listener to this podcast, um, I have been asking people to donate to a Act Blue fundraising page that I have created for Democratically 2020. The page was set up to allow donations to um, split between the Biden campaign, the top seven most competitive Democratic um, Senate races, and the Flippable States Fund, which gives money to down-ballot races across the country. I had set a $5,000 target, a pretty modest $5,000 target, um, because I just wanted to make some efforts towards fundraising as part of this election. And I'm absolutely delighted to say that as of yesterday, we have smashed that target um, with a bunch of you kindly giving over time to the point where we now have arrived at the point of $6,680. So we are well past my initial 5K target. Um, and I just want to say thank you to you all. Um, you've been amazing um, to give. And I've had a look at um, my list of who the donors are. It took me a little while to figure out how to download that spreadsheet, but I've had a little look. And you are mostly strangers to me, um, a, a few friends and family, but mostly it's you, my listeners out there in the wilderness. So I just want to say thank you um, for giving. Thank you for listening. Um, it's really quite humbling to put your voice out there into the world and know that people are, are hearing it and not only hearing it, but hearing it enough that they're putting their money where their mouth is. Um, as you may know, I don't take any form of fund of funding for this podcast. It is not advertiser spon sponsored. I have not accepted um, any sponsorship. Um, I haven't set up a Patreon to raise money. Um, I just put my thoughts out there and I try to raise money for candidates where I can. So it just really, it feels great to know that uh, some of you have, have been able to, to back me. So thank you. Thrilled to welcome Marcella Marholland back to the podcast. Marcella, thank you for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be back. It's a pleasure. So Marcella is the Deputy Head of Climate for Data for Progress, um, which is great because I have so many questions about climate policy. Um, but before we do that, my first question, Marcella, we're only like, what, 2.5 weeks out from Election Day. What's your voting plan? Have you voted yet? Oh my gosh, love this question. Uh, I actually filled in my mail-in ballot uh, earlier this week, uh, looked up all of the amendments and local races in addition to obviously voting for president. Um, and I actually vote in my home state of Florida. So I'm mailing my ballot to my mom, who is then going to drop it off in person because I feel on edge about voting by mail, especially in Florida. Um, but I love yeah, that. it was really nice to just sit down with my ballot and a pen and just, you know, fill in the bubbles against Trump have been waiting many years. <laughs> it feels so good, doesn't it? It feels so, great. So tell me, outside of the presidential race, which uh, which vote that you cast are you most excited about? Um, I voted for an amendment to increase the minimum wage in Florida, which was really exciting. 
Um, yeah, I think ballot initiatives that are statewide are a great, great way to have more of a direct influence on legislation and the democratic process. Um, in Florida, it's a little tricky because there's a Republican governor and state legislature that often gut uh, ballot initiatives that the voters support. Uh, but nonetheless, I was really excited to to back that amendment. Yeah. Well, Florida is a particularly interesting state to vote in because um, I think, you know, I have been until recently really, really worried. And we were starting to talk about this before the, before we started the recording about what election night would look like, because so many of the swing states are not likely to have results on election day because they count their absentee ballots late. But Florida counts its absentee ballots really early. So if we win Florida, we could all have a nice relaxing evening. <laughs> I hope so badly that we have a nice relaxing evening. Uh, Florida is unfortunately often the hub for a lot of uh, election night drama. Uh, we saw this in 2018 where both the Senate and gubernatorial races went to recounts um, which is 2020, very uh, sorry, yeah. 2000, which 2000, I remember very vividly. I was like three years old in 2000, but now hearing about it really sounds like a horror story. Um, that was when Jeb Bush was governor and, and uh, the Florida Supreme Court, I'm pretty sure, decided in favor of. Well, ultimately, the U.S. Supreme Court. Right. But it was a little it was a little fishy, you know, to say the least. It was all um, fishy. Yeah. <laughs> but hopefully that doesn't happen this year. Also, Data for Progress, where I work, just launched something called the Election Night Integrity Project, which is kind of our way of helping to uh, deal with some of the drama that could happen election night, just with Republicans trying to uh, sow doubt about election results or different pundits calling states too early. Um, and folks should check this out on our website and also on election night when we're all doom scrolling and just refreshing <laughs> our news feeds for results. This is hopefully a way to do so responsibly with, with up-to-date information. Oh, that is so great. Send me the link. I will definitely include that in the show notes for this podcast because we all need a bit of a bit of that, some some good information to back up our election night anxieties. Yeah. <laughs> or refute them, hopefully. Yeah. Um, so this week we were meant to be, Marcella, you and I were meant to be talking in a panel discussion about what was supposed to be the second presidential debate, um, which was meant to be in a town, fall, a town hall format taking place in Miami. That didn't happen. No. For all kinds of... Um, just to recap the history a little bit. So the debate commission, because Trump had pet tested positive for coronavirus, was ill and was refusing to um, get supply his tests or behave in any remotely responsible manner. They then tried to switch the debate to a virtual town hall, which he said he wouldn't participate in. The Biden administration, the Biden campaign then said, OK, well, if you're not doing a town hall, um, then we'll we'll go and do our own event, which they confirmed on ABC. The Trump campaign then came back and said, no, no, wait, wait, we'll do something. But by then it was too late. It was just a big mess. Um, so they wound up having dueling town halls instead. Did you watch any of those? Quite the saga, um, right? <laughs> I watched clips of the Biden one last night and was kind of ignoring what was going on with, with the Trump town hall. I did receive some texts from uh, some family members talking about Hunter Biden in Ukraine. So I, I think that was a focus for some Republicans mm -hmm. last night, unfortunately. Um, right. 
but yeah, uh, it's unfortunate that they weren't able to debate um, TBD if they will get a chance to do so before election day. It's interesting though, because I mean, ideally, yes, you would have a substantive debate between two candidates. But to be honest, after the last can- after the last <laughs> debate, where it was just a shout fest and nobody got a word in edgewise, and Biden was totally unable to just answer, like given the opportunity to complete a sentence let alone provide a detailed policy answer to questions i found last night's town hall really refreshing in that like he could actually just set out some ideas and so Mm -hmm. what did you think of it having watched it yeah i think it definitely was refreshing to have space for more substantive policy discussions i think like you said the first debate was kind of a shit show um and a food fight kind of vibe where both candidates were not really able to delve deeply into any policy area (laughs) very much so um but i think honestly you know i think Biden thrives when he's able to kind of lean in more to how his policy differences stand out versus Trump and the Republicans. I think on a wide array of issues from climate to coronavirus, Democrats and Biden are trusted more than Trump and the Republicans. So anytime Biden gets a chance to talk about those issues and his plans to take them on, I think that's really fruitful for our side. Um, I also will say like our polling showed that Biden won the debate when he uh, when there was the one on one debate in Trump v. Biden. So I don't think that it would hurt him to have another face off with Trump, especially I think uh, Trump proved himself to be a little bit unhinged and unable (laughs) to uh, make a great impression. Uh, Surprise, surprise. Uh, But yeah, I think Biden is in a really strong position to uh, really contrast his plans and uh, versus Trump's kind of lack of plans and chaos. Yeah. And I mean, the format, regardless of the format and, and we will get, I mean, unless, you know, more stuff happens, which in this year, you'd have to assume I know. <laughs> if something crazy can happen, it will. But we will get another debate, um, hopefully next week. Um, but this debate, so neither, so the two candidates did not have to address climate change in the first debate. Um, it didn't come up as a question. It did come up a little bit in the vice presidential town hall, mm-hmm. uh, vice presidential debate last week. Um, and, and Trump didn't get any questions on climate in his town hall last night, but Biden did. Um, and I wanted to read out to you one of the things he said, and then um, I'd love to know more. So he says, he's asked about the Green New Deal. He says, my deal is a crucial framework, but not the Green New Deal. The Green New Deal calls for elimination of all non-renewable energy by 2030. You can't get there. So Biden seems to be saying he just doesn't think the Green New Deal is realistic. Now, I know that you um, have been working with the Sunrise Movement um, and you have a different point of view on that. What's your take on um, kind of what Biden was saying there or, or and generally just how would you characterize Joe Biden's climate policy? Yeah, so I think much has been made about the slogan Green New Deal and whether or not Biden uh wants to uh, use that slogan himself for his plans or not, I think personally is 
less relevant to me than the substantive uh, policy points. So Biden and both Senator, both Biden and Senator Harris have made clear that he, quote unquote, doesn't support the Green New Deal. I think he calls his plan uh, Biden's Green Deal, which is fine <laughs> with me. Um, Good branding. <laughs> yeah, I think um, the branding is less relevant to the actual policy points. So just some uh, an overview of what Biden's climate plans include. Some of the top lines are a $2 trillion investment in clean energy jobs and infrastructure that would be carried out over the first uh, over the four years of his first term. Uh, secondly, the plan includes a really strong environmental justice provision that commits to spending 40% of these investments directly in frontline communities, which are communities, uh, disproportionately communities of color that are living on the front lines of poverty and pollution. And lastly, uh, these investments would be paired with new performance standards, most notably a clean electricity standard that would help transition carbon pollution-free power sector by 2035. So those are kind of the, the three main pillars of the plan. And in the broadest strokes, this is kind of the climate policy gospel, according to many progressives. A lot of pieces of this plan draw upon recommendations from the Biden-Sanders task force, in addition to Governor Jay Inslee's climate plans, who Inslee ran a climate-focused uh, campaign earlier in 2019. Um, and although Biden's plan falls short in some ways, I would say uh, his refusal to ban fracking is one of the main points of critique from the climate movement of his plans. Uh, still, in in this is the most ambitious clean energy and environmental justice plan ever proposed by the nominee of America of a major Amer American political party for president. Uh, so I think kind of just to root us in uh, how much the politics on this issue have changed. Like, uh, this is a vision to transition the United States to clean energy while promoting environmental and economic justice. And that's really unlike anything we've ever seen from a Democratic nominee for president and, and obviously a Republican nominee for president. Um, and frankly, you know, a lot of these policy commitments were developed and advocated for by progressive groups like Sunrise and Data for Progress. Um, I can get into some of the specific pieces of the plan that are specifically uh, uh, advocated for by progressives, if you would like. <laughs> well, before we get to that, I would like to hear more of that, um, for sure. Um, but I guess, I guess my other thought and question that I have around climate policy is, that all sounds great. And it sounds like the Biden plan is really ambitious and, mm -hmm. and appropriately ambitious for the scale of the problem. Um, I guess the other question that I have, though, is, is exactly around that question about the scale of the problem and the urgency of the problem. Um, because I'm thinking, Joe Biden, let's let's imagine, hopefully, we wake up <laughs> an election uh, the day after the election and find that Biden is president-elect. We've got an ongoing virus um, pandemic that needs dealing with, which is unlikely to be sorted out by, the, by, by, by Inauguration Day. We've got an accompanying economic crisis, which is deepening by the day and widening inequality as part of that. Um, how concerned are you that, it, that the sheer... A wash of other problems that are at the top of the Biden administration's priority list might mean that we're unable to deal with climate change as quickly as is needed once the once the administration begins. Yeah, that's a great question. There obviously are a bunch of 
uh, intersecting crises happening right now from coronavirus to the economic fallout of the pandemic uh, in addition to climate change. But I think one of the most encouraging things that we've seen from Biden on both climate and the coronavirus is that his economic recovery plan is his climate plan. Um, and, you know, build back better might sound a little hokey, but it really is a good idea. Um, and in addition, we find that voters are really supportive of this approach. Uh, Data for Progress has been conducting its extensive polling in key states that will determine not only control of the presidency, but also the Senate. And we've found repeatedly that a $2 trillion investment plan that rebuilds infrastructure and uh, expands our public health capacity is incredibly popular with voters. So I think one of the, the great things that Biden is doing is kind of rejecting that it's a false choice between like, do you take on climate change or do you address coronavirus and economic recovery? And he's kind of doing what I think is really important, which is approaching climate change in an intersectional manner and thinking about how we can stimulate our economy and recover from coronavirus in a way that also helps move us toward our climate goals and helps build a future that um, is not only thriving in terms of public health, but also in terms of our climate and environment. Yeah. I love that. And I have to say that getting out, finding a way out of an economic crisis by investing in much needed public infrastructure sounds an awful lot like the original New Deal. So maybe yeah. it's a little bit Green New Deal anyway. Call it Green New Deal, call it Biden Green Deal, whatever yeah. you want to call it. Whatever combination <laughs> of words you want. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the Green New Deal at the end of the day is is a framework and a vision of climate policy that centers equity, job creation, and like I said, approaches climate in an intersectional manner. So I think a lot of Biden's policies do fall within that framework. And uh, the Green New Deal has been always been like a, a rallying cry and, and an umbrella for the climate movement to organize itself within. Um, and that's exciting, regardless of what Biden calls his plans. <laughs> Great. And so speaking of the climate movement, I was I was listening today or or this week to um, uh, President Obama's interview um, that he did on on another podcast that you may be familiar with called uh, Pod Save America. Mm -hmm. um, and he was talking about he was asked about kind of, you know, how how people can keep the pressure up, basically. And he was saying it's really important, even if you have a Democratic administration, to keep the movement activism going, because he said, you know, as president, you'll always get pressure from the other side. So you kind of almost need pressure from from the left to to push you so that, you know, you don't get, you know, stray off the path. So what would you say as a, you know, within Data for, Data for Progress and on behalf of the Sunrise movement, what are the things that you might push a Biden administration on um, in the direction of climate? Even even if he, you know, tries to do what he's promised, where would you want to push him to go further? Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more with uh, President Obama on that point. I think uh, far too often you see progressives and the left really mobilize around getting someone elected. And then as soon as they're in office, kind of that energy and enthusiasm fades away. Um, and I think we saw this with Obama, where, you know, people turned out in unprecedented numbers to elect him. But then uh, that kind of energy wasn't there when he was trying to pass the Affordable Care Act or different climate bills. So I think it's really critical that the left and the climate movement stay engaged post 
post election day. Um, I think some of the pieces that the climate movement could be pushing Biden on, I think for one, just holding uh, his feet to the fire in terms of ensuring that he doesn't have fossil fuel lobbyists or people with connections to the fossil fuel industry in his cabinet and administration. Uh, We saw him recently uh, announce like an ethics plan for his transition team in which he said that he wouldn't have people who had worked for fossil fuel or private prison companies as part of the transition team, which is really hopeful. But again, that's just the transition team, not his actual administration. So I think keeping an eye on the ball with that is really important just because, you know, personnel is policy and you have these plans, but actually having people uh, working in the different government agencies and in the White House that are aligned with uh, our movement's goals and values is really critical to making sure that these plans are implemented in an equitable manner. Uh, So I think personnel is one key piece. And also just making sure that uh, Biden feels held accountable to the left when pushing for climate legislation in Congress. I think um, a lot of Democrats in the Senate and in the House like are pretty conservative when it comes to deficit spending or different ideas of what is um, kind of reasonable climate policy. And I think having a a robust climate movement that's kind of bringing moral clarity and urgency to this issue and showing that there are both electoral consequences and rewards for backing things like the Green New Deal will be really important. Um, We just saw Senator Ed Markey, who's, you know, an older Democrat with a not perfect voting record, you know, have a lot of support from the left in the climate movement and was able to to stave off a, a primary from Joe Kennedy, at least in part because of that support. Um, I also think banning fracking is, is going to be likely a contentious point between the Biden administration and the climate movement. Um, and I think, you know, obviously Pennsylvania is a critical swing state and it's a state where their fracking is, is a pretty big issue with the labor community and different people who work in the fossil fuel industry. So, um, you know, I understand why the Biden campaign is being sensitive around this issue. Yet at the same time, like the science is clear and and we need to be really focusing on renewable energy sources uh, that don't have any emissions impacts like fracking does. Uh, So I think that is a point of tension that we can expect to see the climate movement pushing Biden on. But I don't think any of these are you know, points to despair on. I think, uh, you know, with FDR and different presidents that actually ended up implementing really progressive legislation, like they weren't, like FDR wasn't a socialist when he was elected president, and yet he implemented an extremely progressive policy package. And that was in large part due to the social movements that pushed him once he was in office. So, I mean, I think with Biden, I'm under no, like, delusions that he will automatically be aligned with our movement. But I am extremely hopeful that once he's in office, we will be able to organize and to push and support him in backing the most progressive climate agenda that the country has ever seen. I think that's great. And I I love 
how hopeful you are about the the prospects of pushing policy forward. And I, I share that optimism. One thing that I, I get down about when I think about the climate is I'm very aware of the missed opportunity. You know, had my generation got its act together a bit sooner, your generation wouldn't be faced with such a crippling problem at this point. I'm curious how optimistic you feel about the prospects of these policies making the kind of impact that they need to Um in other words, do you feel do you feel to some extent we've we've missed the boat on rolling back some of these climate problems, and we're just going to have to live through some of these some of some of these negative effects? Um, quite the question, Karen. I think <laughs> definitely. Sorry to bum you out. <laughs> no, no, it's I grapple with this all the time. I think uh, we definitely have locked in uh, certain changes in the climate that are not going to be able to be walked back, um, frankly, and uh, putting into place some some feedback loops in our climate that will have ramifications for decades to come is, is a reality that we live with. Um, I think uh, part of my response is just, you know, you fight the good fight. And I think this is an issue where um, any any degree of warming that we are able to avoid could save millions of lives and species. So I think, uh, frankly, despair is not an option. But I mean, yeah, I think there are, we've already lost so many species to this, there already are people dealing with the uh, ramifications of climate change, losing their homes and their livelihoods. And I mean, we are on track to surpass 1.5 degrees of warming already. And really, this election, I see is is kind of our, our, like, last chance to really be able to mobilize at the scale and within the timeline needed to avoid the worst effects of climate change. That being said, even uh, if this election doesn't go as we hope, like, I think we do have to keep fighting just because the stakes are so high and there's so much on the line uh, with climate change. So, um, yeah, I think Biden's plans aren't perfect, but they do give us and our children and, and future generations and, and marginalized communities a fighting chance. And for me, that will always be worth fighting for. Can't disagree with a word of that, for sure. Listen, Marcella, shall we um, take a few minutes and play the gut check game around uh, the comments from the town halls? Yes, let's play the gut check game. Let's play the gut check game. <laughs> So for those of you who are new to the podcast, um, all I do each week is I take some quotes and sayings heard around the campaign trail, put them in a hat, draw them at random out, and Marcel and I just react. Um, This week, I've taken quotes from the dueling town halls. Um, And so I think what we'll do is why don't we go back and forth? I've got a pile of Trump quotes and a pile of Biden quotes. Let's take turns. Just like people switching, switching their channels back and forth. And I'll give you the choice. Do you want to start with a Biden or a Trump? I'm nervous for Trump, so let's start with Trump. <laughs> let's break our way in gently. Fair enough. Right. Oh, gosh. You probably said some wild things. Right. Okay. So Biden, we said we'd go for first, right? Okay. Here's one. Trump. We oh, can sorry. do either Trump, one. <laughs> Trump, 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 Trump. Sorry. Yep. Okay, here's one. Um, this is an exchange between Trump and the, the moderator, Savannah Guthrie. Um, they're talking about Trump having retweeted a, um, a, a, a tweet from a conspiracy theorist talking about um, 
the theory that the SEAL Team Six team was killed oh, and that God. Osama Biden, Osama bin Laden, uh, assassination death was fake, just all kinds of crazy stuff. She says, and he says, oh, I was just a retweet. She says, I don't get that. You're the president. You're not like someone's crazy uncle who can just retweet whatever Trump. That was a retweet. And I do a lot of retweets. And frankly, because the media is so fake and so corrupt, if I didn't have social media, dot, oh dot, dot. Oh, my gosh. Um, I got to say, I totally agree with Savannah here. A retweet is not just a retweet when it comes from the commander in chief and the president. Um, I think anything that Trump tweets out, it should be considered an f- official statement that he's making. Um, and I think his social media, frankly, shows how how little he cares and how you know he doesn't take his role as president seriously at all. I mean, he almost has brought us to war a few times on Twitter. Um, and I'm just not surprised that he is continuing to use his platform to spread conspiracy theories that are bigoted and, and untrue. I mean, I don't know what to say. I don't follow him on Twitter. Yeah, really I, actually, I, actually, I actually have him blocked on Twitter. Okay. I do, because I, I get so many people retweeting what he says, and I don't want to get hit with it. So by having him block, it just comes out as, like, someone going, this is crazy, and then this this media is blocked. I find it really helps my sanity. Okay, okay, I might have to try that out. <laughs> um, yeah, I had the same reaction you did. Um, but also, I, I think he's he's really contradicting himself kind of intentionally, right? He's trying to have it both ways. Like, oh, that was just a retweet, as in, right. like, I don't know if it's true or not true. But then at the same time, he's saying, here is important information that you, the mainstream media, are not putting out there. So you are saying you back it. Like, you are right. saying this is important information that people need to know. And he does this whole thing of, like, later on in that same exchange, he goes um, something like, you know, well, people just commit make up their own minds i'm like no this works (laughs) right well i i totally agree and i think this is in line with his pattern of just kind of you know sowing the seeds for violence and racism and then being like oh i don't know i have nothing to do with this um an example is is he was tweeting like liberate michigan earlier in the summer with all of uh because of the coronavirus precautions that the state was taking. And then this alt-right group is trying to kidnap the governor of Michigan. And Trump is like, you know, I don't, I had nothing to do with it, but it's like your words have an impact when you are president. And, and I think he has to take responsibility for that. I don't expect he will, but um, yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's cleanse our palate a little bit and go to a Biden (laughs) one. Okay. <laughs> Honestly, I'm not. I know I'm editorializing here, but when I was pulling the quotes, I just went for tra- transcripts of the two, the two, and I just went back and forth, and it was literally like, "Here's a pile of crazy bullshit. <laughs> Here's a long, multi-paragraph answer on a policy question." I was like, "Oh, it's so nice to to, to just be in Biden's world for a little while without Trump in there. It's so yeah. nice." Reading the transcripts is kind of grounding because you just see Trump's like not you really see it in a different light when you see oh it yeah form. <laughs> i highly recommend consuming all trump content in written form yes um it just it's much more clarifying yes um so biden was asked a a, a, question, a criminal justice question and one of the things he says was quote we should de- decriminalize marijuana wipe out the record so you can actually say in honesty have you ever been arrested for anything you can say no because we were going to pass a law saying there's no background that you have to reveal relative to the use of marijuana 
I'm all about it. I think we need to decriminalize marijuana and also expunge the records of anyone who is incarcerated uh, because of this. Um, in New York, there's uh, something called the Clean Slate Initiative that is working on on doing just that. I think, um, I mean, I don't know what to say except that people shouldn't be punished for the rest of their lives for having smoked weed. I mean, it's as simple as that. Um, <laughs> And I also would love to see uh, some sort of, you know, retroactive uh, kind of reparations or whatever you want to call it done to people who've already spent a lot of time in prison due to marijuana if it becomes decriminalized. Um, but yeah, couldn't agree more. There's also something called Ban the Box, which is an initiative that different states have taken on where it bans uh you know, job applications from asking about if you have a criminal background, which often becomes a, a point of discrimination against formerly incarcerated folks. So oh, yeah, I'm down, nice. down with all of that. Yeah, I'm fascinated by all of that. And I have to say, I was really struck by the fact that how quickly our politics has moved on, because there was a time when a Democratic candidate would try desperately to avoid any question around marijuana legalization. And he brought it up. Right. He brought it up and he went further. He didn't just say it should be decriminalized, but it should be expunged. I was like, this is this feels like a big shift in the narrative of what Democratic politicians are not only willing, but eager to say. And that made me really happy because it feels like and I don't know, I think it's probably partly connected to the summer of protests that we've had and the really big conversation we've had about what racial justice looks like and what criminal justice really should look like. Um, and it just feels like we've all had a national education and, and Biden's been right there with us. So I, I loved that. It made me really happy. Yeah. And coming from the person who wrote the crime bill in the 90s, I mean, it's quite quite the shift. Yeah, it's quite an evolution. But, you know, it's a different time. Yeah. Right. Uh, speaking of African-Americans and racial justice, Trump has some things to say about that. Oh, my goodness. I'm not um, ready, Karen. <laughs> brace yourself. So so Trump is asked uh, about racial justice, and he says, I've done more for the African-American community than any president, with the exception of Abraham Lincoln. Criminal justice reform, prison reform, historically backed colleges and universities. I got them funded. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> He's done uh, the most since Abraham Lincoln. Just, you what? know, most of Abraham Lincoln. Black people I, should be thanking him, really, Marcella. I can't with this. I don't <laughs> even know what to say. What's your gut? Like, it's just ridiculous. I don't know. This is someone who uh, gave speeches kind of encouraging cops to, like, rough people up um, when they're arresting them. I don't, I don't know what to say. Like, this is a person who has empowered and appointed white supremacists, like... I'm, I'm confused. I mean, it's, so here's the thing. Like, so Trump is, he hates black people. He just does. I mean, and it, it goes way back. I mean, the, you know, back in the 1970s, he was discriminating against black people for housing and was taken to court by the federal government and right. had to settle out of court. And then he, you know, back in the 80s, he called for um, the so-called Central Park Five to be executed before they'd even been tried. And then they were exonerated. And he still said that they were guilty, even though the proof didn't. Yeah. Like, he just, over and over again, he has a huge history of racism. And yet, like open racism, he does not hide it very well. And yet, it is true that he is doing better specifically with young black African Americans than um, than he did in 2016. And I don't get it. 
it's just baffling to me. Oh, I didn't know that. That's concerning. Yeah, yeah a lot of polls show him performing better with specifically African-American young males. Not the re- not overall African-Americans, but right. specifically with that demographic. And I don't know if it's that they like his swagger. I don't know if they've been getting misinformation. I don't know what's going on, but yeah, it's it's just weird. But That is anyway. weird. I think that speaks to potentially, like, both parties' complicity in allowing mass incarceration to go on unchecked for the past few decades. Um, I think also, you know, with we talked a little bit about this on on the last time I was on the podcast, but with defund police, defund the police, like that is a rallying cry of the Black Lives Matter movement. And we still see some leaders in the Democratic Party kind of not fully getting behind that. So I think um, that might lead some some young folks to feel disillusioned with the Democrats. I don't know. Yeah, I feel like you have KKK white supremacists on one side and then on the other side you have some folks that you can hopefully push to to back your goals um yeah I don't know yeah and yet the the media narrative often devolves to well both sides are imperfect it's like right it's not actually telling the whole story that's that's kind of not yeah it's not a thing (laughs) um speaking of the KKK This is an awkward pivot, but just because the letter K features in this next one. Um, Biden is uh, asked about um, the economy. He says, quote, he, that's the president, he talks about a V-shaped recovery. It's a K-shaped recovery. If you're on the top, you're doing very well. And the other things, and if you're on the bottom, or if you're in the middle or the bottom, your income is going down. Um, I'm thinking about Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk that have, uh, you know, exponentially increased their wealth during a pandemic that has left millions of Americans out of work and hungry and not being able to afford health care or rent. Um, I think it's true that, you know, our economy already was dealing with really crippling economic inequality where we are seeing the top 1% accumulating more and more wealth, whereas uh, the bottom echelons of society and the economy were were not uh, gaining that wealth and power at the same scale. And I think the recession that we're in and, and the crises that we're facing are only exacerbating an issue that already was real before coronavirus. Um yeah, I, I think it's true. And I think it really speaks to who and what our economy values that we're in a situation where millions of people are out of work and a few extremely wealthy billionaires are still able to profit off of and uh, increase their already absurd amount of wealth and power. Yeah, I, I do feel like that inequality baked into our financial system has really come to life in a horrifying way um, during the coronavirus. Not that it wasn't already very present, but even things like I look at the stock market and I cannot understand how the stock market can keep going up and up when people are out of work. Um, You know, there's huge crushing poverty. A lot of people are unable to you know, a lot of businesses are unable to function, but the stock market's doing great because they are totally disconnected. Their assessment of value is just totally disconnected from 
the value that affects people in their real lives. And I think it just, for me, it's been really eye-opening about how far we have strayed away from a, a world in which broad prosperity is reflected in the in the kind of valuations of the market or, you know, the, the way that wealth is acquired. So 100%. Okay. And I think it speaks to, you know, some people when they, they're trying to see how the economy is doing will look at the stock market, but that really just doesn't paint an accurate or holistic picture of how, the economy is for millions of Americans that, you know, are, are living in an on the ground reality that is not reflected at all in how stocks are doing or how Jeff Bezos is doing. And I think it's important to look at things like, you know, economic inequality, unemployment numbers, how many people are food insecure, how many people can afford health insurance, how many people are like a $200 bill away from bankruptcy, like these are all important metrics of economic well-being that I think we should be looking at instead of the stock market. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think we're long overdue for a, a serious conversation about, you know, how wealth should be at, should be distributed. And, you know, Elizabeth Warren talked a lot about this during the during the primary. She was talking a lot about wealth taxes and the need to just, you know, like rebalance the economy um, so that it's structured to work for the broad base of American people, not just for a very small number of billionaires. Um, mm -hmm. I think, you know, I think Biden, you know, probably didn't have the same set of policies, but I think broadly he is seeing the same set of problems. So, you know, yeah. I'm glad, I was glad to see him raise it. I'll also just add quickly with our, our polling, you know, taxing the rich and corporations is extremely popular. 69% uh, of voters agree that corporations and the wealthy should pay their fair share in taxes. Um, yeah. And this is supported by a majority of Democrats, independents and Republicans. And, you know, I think that speaks to kind of the broad base of support uh, that people have for for a more fair tax system. Um, and sometimes we even find that when you ask voters about a policy uh, without adding a wealth tax framework, uh, mm -hmm. it becomes more popular when you tell voters we will pay for this by taxing the rich. So mm -hmm. um, there is enthusiasm amongst the base for for that. That's kind of really interesting. So people almost want to they almost want the rich to be taxed more than they want the policies they would buy for it. Like, or people at least love it. They love, love it. it. <laughs> love it. Well, you know, I, I keep saying, you know, tax the rich, you know, take their money or pretty soon, you know, it's going to be torches and midnight, you know, I mean, yeah. people are getting really angry and really frustrated. And the fact that, you know, no, no exercise of political will seems to result in billionaires not not getting richer, I think is really frustrating to people, not just on the left. I think, you know, people yeah. across the country. Totally. So. And rightfully so. They're frustrated. Right. Um, here's so we're going back to Trump, uh, Trump one now. Um, this is a question about stimulus. Trump says, you know who I'm negotiating against? Nancy Pelosi, because she doesn't want to give them money. We should have stimulus. This was not our people's fault. This was China's fault. And she's penalizing our people. I'm ready to sign a big, beautiful stimulus. I'm sorry, I dropped into a depression there. A big, beautiful stimulus. Big, beautiful stimulus. Wow, so much to unpack there. Right? Um, I th Pelosi and the House Democrats passed a, a stimulus bill months ago, if I recall correctly. Yep, they that did. Republicans and, and Trump have failed to take up. So I think, you know, not exactly rooted in reality. Um, and also, what, a week ago he was saying that he doesn't want any more coronavirus relief before the election. So... I think he really is 
playing politics with an issue that uh, affects millions of Americans. And I think, you know, passing stimulus and relief for coronavirus should have happened months ago and hasn't partially because of the, the, the political games that Trump and the Republicans are playing. So, yeah, yeah, uh, agreed. Um, and I think, you know, it, you're, you're right. He's playing loose with the, I'm sure he fully knows the facts as usual with the president. I, it's hard to it's hard to discern where he's lying and where he's just being stupid, because <laughs> yeah, because does he actually know that the Democrats are pushing for? I mean, I guess he knows that the Democrats are pushing for a bigger stimulus, and that you know the other thing that he doesn't touch on, which he you know is the is the elephant in the room in this whole question of stimulus, is that the reason that the president's preferred stimulus, um, which was pretty generous, didn't go forward was that his own side didn't want it. The Republicans don't want more money for stimulus funding. They're starting to talk about, oh, we can't give people more unemployment benefits because then they might not go back to their jobs. Like, there are no jobs. What are they going to go back right. to? So, but I mean, I think, you know, the media needs to be a little bit more clear-eyed about pointing out that there is a fundamental disconnection here. And Trump is just lying about the reasons why there isn't a stimulus. If if Nancy Pelosi were who he was negotiating with, we would have passed it months ago, as you say. He's mm. negotiating with his own side and they are not, they, they, they don't want stimulus. Right. All right, let's do one more of each. Um, so we'll go back and do one more Biden one. Um, here's, oh, this is the one that probably generated the most news from yesterday's town hall. And this is on the question of whether or not to expand the Supreme Court. Stephanopoulos is asked, um, so Biden Biden said that, you know, it depends on what happens. And Stephanopoulos pushed him saying, if they vote on it before the election, you are open to expanding the court. And Biden says, I'm open to considering what happens from that point on. It's a little bit of a, a word salad dance around <laughs> giving a direct answer. Like, um, what did you actually say? Yeah, I mean... I'm anticipating that Republicans will do whatever they need to do to push uh, uh, Amy Coney Barrett through. Um, that's what I'm anticipating. And I think there's no question that um, when and if Biden wins, we need to pack the courts just because our uh, democracy really is, is on the line here. And a Supreme Court that swings right is a threat to the civil liberties of queer people, of it's a threat to our climate, it's a threat to millions of people's health care. And, um, you know, I, I have more of a, a consequentialist approach to this. I think Democrats need to be willing to do whatever they need to do in order to improve the lives of Americans who are struggling and to protect the rights of people whose rights have been threatened for far too long. And if that means packing the court, then that's what it means. And I hope that Biden uh, feels clear-eyed about that uh, come come January when he's inaugurated. Yeah, it's an interesting one because I totally take your point. Um, and I completely see where you're coming from. What's interesting to me is that I would say pretty confidently that's not Joe Biden's position. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think he's a consequentialist. I think he's an institutionalist. And yet he still isn't willing to just come out and outright say that that's not what he's going to do, which suggests to me 
his position is evolving on that question somewhat. And I think that's really interesting. Now, he did say in this town hall that he would uh, he would make clear his position before the election, but he was going to wait and see what happened with the Barrett nomination. So partly it may just be that he's waiting to have leverage to use against the Republicans to try and to try and slow or block things. Um, but yeah, I think so for me, I think it, Democrats need to be a little bit careful about talking about what we're doing. If we if we go this route, we need to be careful about talking about it as packing the court, because I think it's unpacking the court in mm-hmm. that I think Republicans have packed the court. Right. They used pol- they used political power that uh, they acquired not through demo- not through pure execute- totally. exercise of democracy. Right. Like they they've nominated people. By you know, first of all, you know that Merrick Garland's seat was stolen, right? Right. Um, and also, quite a lot of the several of the justices who have been appointed, including Trump's two justices to date, were appointed without um, by a president who didn't win the popular vote. So there are existing conservative liens in American institutions. Republicans have taken full advantage of those and then pushed a little bit beyond that, um, resulting in a Supreme Court that in no way reflects the view of the Amer- views of the American people. And I think John Roberts, the this chief justice, I think he's kind of aware and nervous about how far the court is straying from mainstream public opinion. And I think Democrats need to call that out pretty explicitly. We have to call out that, you know, it isn't that we're trying to, Democrats are trying to cheat. We're trying to like uncheat. We're trying to reverse the effects of previous malfeasance. Karen, I could not agree more. I'm shaking my head so hard right now. (laughs) Like nothing nothing radicalizes me quite like the Supreme Court and the Senate. I mean, there's such blatantly anti-democratic institutions. And I think, you know, I, I couldn't agree more that I, Joe Biden is more of an institutionalist than a consequentialist. And I think uh, a lot of Democrats like Joe Biden that maybe years ago could have never seen themselves backing something like significant changes to the Supreme Court are finding themselves in a position where you're dealing with a Republican Party that doesn't give a shit about institutional or democratic norms. And yeah. Frankly, you know, we're in this really toxic feedback loop where Republicans are losing the popular vote by millions of votes and still gaining power in the presidency, losing the Senate popular vote and still maintaining majority in the Senate and using those levers of power to then appoint more conservative justices to the Supreme Court that then gut voting rights, uh, uphold voter suppression efforts. Um, gut any other democratic reform efforts. And, you know, we're getting into this really dangerous place where, like you're saying, increasingly the people in power in the Senate and the White House on the Supreme Court are blatantly misaligned with where the majority of Americans stand. And I think that quickly leads to a crisis of democracy and a crisis of, of distrust in our institutions. And um, I think even people like Joe Biden, who are older, who are more traditional, are feeling radicalized by this moment where, um, you know, the Republican Party is playing really dirty. And if we want to maintain any semblance of a democracy, we're going to need to also be ambitious and um, kind of ruthless about what needs to be done to protect our institutions and to make sure that uh, the majority of Americans' views are reflected in our political process. 
Yeah, totally agree. I mean, I would add to the list of of the the accurate list of institutional interventions that you talked about. I would also throw in something that people don't talk about very much, which is the census. Um, yeah. So there's a census. Donald Trump has been overseeing the U.S. Census. That's that's a problem right there. They've been manipulating it and interfering in the conducting the conducting of the census right from the start. Um, to the point of you know, for example, they got struck down by the Supreme Court when they tried to include a question about citizenship on the census. They are trying. They they've signaled they're trying to find a way to exclude non-citizens from the census um, so that they can, and that would have the effect of disadvantaging democratically districts, democratic-leaning states, they would get less federal funding, they would have less democratic representation in Congress. Um, And just this week, the Supreme Court permitted the administration to stop the census count sooner than was originally planned, um, you know, despite the fact that actually because of the the virus, they really should be carrying on for much longer. So I think one of the things that I would suggest to the Biden administration that I don't think he needs to talk about, I think he just needs to do it is, you know, if and when we get in, we need to rerun that sentence from start, from Mm -hmm. scratch, because I don't trust any of the data. It was run at a time of pandemic. It was run by an institution that was deliberately trying to manipulate it and is caught out by the courts many times trying to manipulate it. And I don't think, and this is one of the things where I don't think Democrats should just lie down and take things. I don't think we just have to go, oh, well, that's how it is. We need to fully fund a completely new census. Um, And I think we have the power to do that, but we just need to have the will. Yeah, agreed. I think the reason the Trump administration is fighting so hard to limit the census is because they know it has significant political ramifications. And I think Democrats would be wise to to take that seriously as well. Um, one more point to make on this is that I think often, you know, something like what you're suggesting, like running the whole census again, or packing the court, like these are often uh, labeled as radical ideas that are, you know, far left and, and just fully out there. But I, I think really the status quo is quite radical. And what is deemed as, you know, far out crazy ideas is really reflective of who's in power in society and who would benefit or be disadvantaged by a change in the status quo. And I think, you know, with the the Amy Coney Barrett hearings, we're seeing we're, we're going into the last decade where we really have a chance to avoid the worst climate chaos. And this is an issue that will have ramifications for decades and, and you know, centuries to come. And she said she doesn't have firm views on climate change. So we're, we're going to have essentially a climate denier on the Supreme Court at the same time that we're really fighting for the future of our species and um, not doing anything to address climate climate change is radical. Um, and the the changes to our world that we will see if, if we let global warming continue unabated are, you know, it'll be a world that we can't recognize, frankly. So, so changes to the Supreme Court, changes to the census, changes to the Senate um, really don't seem as radical in, in light of the, the, the status quo that we're, we're in. I think that's a great place to leave off our conversation. <laughs> the, it's a pretty radical world we live in. Let's uh, let's yeah. de-radicalize it with more sensible policies. <laughs> yes. And I like what you said about the Republicans have already packed the court. They already have. Let's unpack it. Yes, please. <laughs> let's unpack the court. <laughs> great. Marcella, as always, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. And um, fingers crossed. And uh, thanks for voting. Oh, thanks so much, Karen. And that's it. 
As always, you can reach me on Twitter at KarenJR. That's K-A-R-I-N-J-R. Um, if you haven't voted yet, what are you waiting for? Get on with it, please. Um, whether you're voting early in person, whether you're voting by absentee ballot, or even if you plan on going in on election day, make sure you've got a voting plan worked out. If you're an American abroad, you want to go to votefromabroad.org. If you're an American back home, vote.org can help you sort out your ballot. Um, as always, you should know that this podcast is not affiliated with any other organization or entity. It is just me, and I wish you a very happy week. Thank you.